Albert Einstein once said that all religions, arts and sciences are branches of the same tree. As today's technology and global risks race ahead of our understanding and stretch the boundaries of humanity, we face unprecedented ethical conundrums. I believe that reaching beyond the sciences and religion to that third branch, the arts, offers essential insight into these challenges. I call ethical decision-making on the borders of humanity, ethics on the edge. We all teeter on the edge. How do we define a life well-lived in a partly virtual world? Where do we look for moral guidelines and truth when curated selves befriend each other through algorithms? How do we make conscionable decisions in the uncharted territory of civilian space travel, designer genetics, and artificial intelligence? And what about the problems that are still on the ethical edge but shouldn't be, such as inequality or racism? Please join me in conversation with some of the world's leading artists and arts world pioneers as we explore some of today's most challenging ethical questions through the lens of the visual and performing arts, architecture, and literature. Thank you so much for doing this. It's really an honor to meet you and an honor to have the occasion to speak to you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Um, before we get into some of the more ethics-focused questions, I'd like to look a little bit at how you've managed to achieve this extraordinary body of work. And specifically, how do you decide what you're going to write about? You know, it decides more than I do. I mean, what happens to me is that when I, well, I, mean, when I don't have a book to write, mm -hmm. in a way I work just as hard as when I do have a book to write. I'm just... I'm just um, kicking stuff around, you know, and, and most days I dislike what I wrote the previous day. But you know, what, what happens gradually is that something starts sticking in my head, you know, and, and then I have to ask myself why that is. Why am I, why am I thinking about that? You know, and that's usually what turns into, turns into a project. And is that something in your head, something external usually, or something...? No, it could be both. It could be, be both. It could be either or both. And, uh, and, and I think what tends to happen in the end with these books is that they become, they somehow exist on a kind of intersection point between something private and something public, something that comes from inside and something that is a response to what's happening outside. I think those crossroads, you know, are interesting places. And how do you make it so clear that everybody's stories intersect with everybody else's stories? And I'm particularly fascinated by this in a social media world where the decisions we make and how ethical or not so ethical they are end up being magnified right. by social media. But in your works, it's so clear that everybody sort of affects everybody else. How, yeah. do, you, how do you do that? I mean, I just think that's the world we live in, you know, and I think it didn't used to be the case. I mean, if you, if you look at uh, novels from what's the sort of golden age of the novel in the sort of 18th, 19th centuries, they don't feel the need to suggest that because people's worlds were sealed off. They were little worlds. You know, Jane Austen's characters, exactly. you know, are in these little in worlds. You know, Madame Bovary is in a little world, you know, and, and that little world completely explains them, you know. And they don't have to look beyond. But now we don't live in those bubbles, you know. All our, all our little boxes collide with everybody else's little boxes. So the question is, how do you represent that? And that's something I've been interested in for a long time. Do you think that um, to bring that to 2017, are you also interested in sort of 
the frontiers of humanity and sort of man-machine, man-animal? I wish I had a bit more science than I do. You know, uh, uh, I, I am interested in the whole kind of AI mm -hmm. field. And I mean, I, I, there's a part of my life which I was a big science fiction freak. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of science fiction foretold all of this. You know, right. the, the, so, so uh, in a way, if you if you grew up reading, you know, Arthur Clarke and and Ray Bradbury and you know people like that, then you kind of you're ahead of the curve in a way, you know, um, because you know as as we know, Isaac Asimov d developed the laws of robotics before there were robots, right. you know? <laughs> and and the problem now is, if you're reaching the point which we seem to be reaching, where where a robot or an artificial intelligence might have an ethical sense. Would that interrupt, or would that contradict the, the famous first law of robotics, which is that a robot can't, ha can't harm a human being? You know? That if a, if a robot were to ethically decide that a human being was evil, would that override the first law? I mean, this is the kind of area we're reaching now. Well, also we're looking at sort of who decides. Yeah. So who's behind the algorithms that are yes. telling you that you have a good fashion sense or that are driving your cars? And at the moment, the experts, and I'm no expert in AI, but the experts tell me that, for example, driverless cars don't have any judgment. Yes. So for the moment, we're still dependent on human judgment, even if it's being executed or operationalized through machines. It would take a lot to get me into a driverless car. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really would. You know. Big leap of faith. Yeah, I'd prefer to trust the worst driver I know. Now, there is something about that feeling that um, I say to my students that uh, ethics or ethical decision-making tethers us to our humanity. Yes. And there is something about that sort of feeling like we can't communicate with the machine, we can't convince them that whatever might be its view of, the, of right or wrong, yeah. it hasn't quite taken into account no, humanity. I don't, no, I don't think so. I, I mean, I, I do think that ethics is the hardest thing when you mm -hmm. start talking about artificial intelligence. You know, how, how do you give a machine a moral sense? And if you give it a moral sense, what are its morals? Well, and also, who, who has the capacity to give machines moral sense? Are we basically giving to society, uh, rather, are certain individuals who have the technological or the scientific prowess now making all the decisions for society? Yeah, and I guess one way you do it is you just pour philosophy into the machine and then see what, the, <laughs> see, see what sense the machine makes of it. I mean, I mean that's, what, that's what we do, you know? Yeah. We pour ideas into ourselves and then we decide which ones... Well, I'm going to be waiting for that book. <laughs> Until then, could we speak for a moment about fantasy? Yes. It's really extraordinary what you do with fantasy throughout most of your books. Why fantasy? Is that something because I read that you grew up reading the Arabian Nights? Is that yeah. just part of who you are, or is it's, that to make a point? No, I mean, it, I think it starts in childhood in India because what you get given as a kind of literary gift, the, the so-called wonder tales of the East, you know, which, of which the Thousand and One Nights is just one of them. You know. I mean, in India, there's lots of others. There's the animal fables of the Panchatantra. There's Kashmiri text, which was originally in Sanskrit, which is actually longer than the Thousand and One Nights. That is more stories like that, which is, which is called the Ocean of the Streams of Story. Uh, okay. and, uh, and then you know, there's the classic great mythologies of the Ramayana and the Mahabharata and so on. So you grow up with all this stuff. You know, and for me, that was the first grounding, you know, and, and then, as I say, I became interested in science fiction and, and, and the literature of what I think is better now called speculative fiction, you know, the, um, the, the literature of imagining what might be. Yeah, and then I got very interested in a kind of a tradition of Western literature, which crops up 
in every language now and then, you know, which is the tradition of non-naturalistic fiction, whether it's you know, Bulgakov and Gogol in Russian literature or Kafka and Gunter Grass and, or the South Americans or, you know, et cetera. So I became interested in that. And then all those things sort of in my head started talking to each other and, and that's where it came from, I guess. So just before we broaden the lens a little bit to ethics, you, you mentioned Gunter Grass. I read an interview where he said, Germany, I just kind of can't get it out of myself. Yeah. And it's kind of always there in the politics of Germany. Do you feel that way? I mean, India, Pakistan, do you feel? Well, I, you know, I mean, I've spent now a lot of my life not there. And, and uh, my more recent books have sort of not really been, been set there. But what I've completely failed to do up to now is, is to write a novel which doesn't have an Indian, cent Indian characters at the very center of them, whether they're in New York or in Delhi or Bombay, it doesn't matter, but I don't seem to be able to have a novel without Indian characters in it. I have completely failed to do that. More generally, Einstein talks about uh, religion, the arts and science. How do you think artists influence the ethics of their day or the ethics of um, subsequent generations, whether it's literature or music or uh, you know, other performing arts or the visual arts? Well, it's very difficult to say in terms of a direct effect, you know, because it doesn't often doesn't have a direct effect, it has an indirect effect. You know, it has, a, has an effect on individual readers and collectively, and you don't know what those effects are going to be. And I guess, I suppose, the popular arts, I mean, like popular music, has an enormous impact on the way people think, you know, the, the, way, the way in which fans of rock stars, pop stars, or rap stars, you know, with the way in which they respond to the, even to the lifestyles of, the, of those characters, I think has an effect on, on social life. And certainly the way they respond to lyrics. I mean, some of the lyrics today of, of some of the rappers, for example, talking about very current ethical issues about gender identity or about, you know, I don't feel I'm enough if I don't have the right car and I'm not drinking the right beer and I'm yes. not in the right place with the right girl and all this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I got a bit worried about the way in which rap, hip hop went down a kind of boastful, blingy route, you know, where the whole point was how much money you had and, and what followed from money, you know. Right. Um, and, uh, I mean, in the early days, rappers were more socially conscious, and I think that may, there may be a little bit of a return to that, and I think that's not a bad thing. Well, and some of the lyrics are showing that problem up, even yeah. if the rappers themselves are sort of decked from top to bottom in gold and yes. you know, driving Maseratis, etc. Yeah, but I think there is a strain of hip-hop which is, which is less mm -hmm. boastful. You know, and, and I think that's, I think boastfulness is, is, a, is a curse of the times, you know, that, uh, and uh, uh, we have to somehow, I mean, we have it in the White House, you know, so we have to somehow find a way to get beyond this chest-beating stuff. We're going to come back to the White House in a minute, okay. but just on this topic of artists, uh, I, I read in an interview you said that you don't try to ascribe meaning, you don't try to tell the reader. Yeah, I don't like, I don't, as a reader, I don't like books that preach at me. Okay. You know, I mean, I don't like I don't like books that kind of wag, wag a finger at me and say this is what you should think. You know, I think, I think I'll be the judge of that. Mm -hmm. You know, and I mean, what I think is, I don't like didacticism in in fiction. You know, and I think uh, you know James Joyce had this this term. He said that literature should be static, not dynamic. And mm -hmm. and I, I mean, what he meant by that is that it shouldn't tell you things; it should just be. And I think that's not a bad guideline. What you try and do is just to create a world, an imaginative world, for your reader to inhabit. You know? And then in that world, they will 
face various kinds of challenges and choices and do you like this or what do you think of that piece of behavior? And you know, you make up your own mind and you come, you come out of the book at the other end, hopefully having had a good time in that world. But you know, the job is to create the world, not to answer the questions. I think this is really an important point about didacticism generally about the way ethics is perceived. I think about it as problem solving, yeah. not judgment and not finger pointing. And I think we're in a lot of trouble because people shy away from ethics and say, you know, I don't, don't tell me what to do, yeah. don't blame me. Yeah. But in your works, we're constantly confronting choices yeah. and living them from different perspectives, from different characters. Yeah, and I think that's what, that's, what, that's what the novel can do. It does it really well because it makes you enter the subjective reality of, of other people. And the human reality. Yeah. And often, you know, characters that you love are behaving in ways which are reprehensible, you know, and, and you have to, I mean, like I mentioned Madame Bovary, I mean, there's a woman in provincial France bored with her life deciding to have an affair. And we're on her side, really, all the way through the book, we're on her side, but what she's doing is cheating on her husband. You know? So we have to work out what we think about that. Well, and that's humanity. Yeah, right? yeah, and we all face those problems in our own lives. And, that, and that's where you also get to this question of, determining that someone is a good person, quote unquote, sort of lock, stock and barrel, yeah. versus they made this decision well or this decision a little less well. Yes, I mean, anybody, I mean, certainly in a novel, anybody who is a good person is unbearable. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and, uh, and I mean, actually a bad person is less unbearable. Well, let's see if you still think that's true, if we could come back to the White House for a minute. Oh, yes. Via one question about truth in your own works. Um, truth is obviously a big theme today. You've said a lot that the novel can be a way of exposing the truth, even if it's fiction, and that yeah. sometimes fiction exposes the truth better than nonfiction, or even in the, in the case of something like Harun, in the case of a political leader who doesn't seem to have any credibility trying to speak the truth. Yeah. What is your take on the importance today of fiction Given the crisis state of truth in our world today, is fiction even more important in that regard? It's, it's, I think, a very, very problematic time for anybody writing anything, really, because uh, it's unprecedented, I think, in this country for there to be an attack on, in a way, on the nature of reality itself. You know, that, that's the, that, that things which all of us accepted, we thought, as so, you know, are now being questioned. You know, and people in the Environmental Protection Agency who don't believe in climate change. Right. You know, and, uh, and the idea of there being scientific fact, the idea of there being evidence-based reality, you know, is under a great deal of attack. Now, and experts have no credibility anymore. Yes, the more you know, the more suspect you are. So you become an elite. And of course, there's something really ridiculous about this government of billionaires referring to scholars and journalists as elites when there's really never been a government in this country in which more personal wealth has been concentrated into the small... Everywhere, the Treasury Secretary, the Education Secretary, yeah. everywhere. Billionaires everywhere, but we are the elites. You know? uh, they're the people who, have the, 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 who know about what ordinary life is like. You know, I mean, ask Betsy DeVos what a, what a liter of milk costs, what a pint of milk costs. No, like we had the croissant problem in France. Yes. But, yeah. You know, so the world is upside down. And, and I think there's a lot of questions that, I, I mean, novelists that I know have been wrestling with, which is in a world where we're surrounded on an almost daily basis by colossal lies. So um, what are we, where do we get off making up things that aren't true? So, um, and uh, I mean, it's a problem. 
You know, and I think that you can only begin to get towards the answer by understanding that there is a difference between fiction and lies. You know, and for a start, literature fiction tells you that it's made up. It's it, honest it, about what it is. Yes, it doesn't claim to be fact. You know, it, it says this is a different thing, and through this different thing, which is not factual, we can understand truths about human, human nature and, and, about, and about the kind of world we live in. But we're not pretending that these are real people and that these things actually happened. You know? So the, just the upfrontness of it is different. Whereas you know, in, in the public sphere right now, we have lies trying to insist that they are in fact true. You know? and that, that's, a bigger, that's a bigger moral problem. That's a bigger moral problem, but we also seem to have a complete disrespect for the truth, as if it has yes. no value. So it's yes. not even a question of we're pretending something's true. It's yeah. that whether something's true or not doesn't seem to have any importance and, and anymore. Unfortunately, that's not just a problem coming out of the administration. It's a larger problem in the culture, you know, because one of the things, one of the side effects of, of, the, of the internet, where all kinds of garbage is out there all the time, existing at the same level of reality as, as hard information, it becomes very difficult, I think, for many people to, 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 to work that out, to watch what is, what is garbage and what is truth. Well, particularly when the ranking process is how many likes, how many, yeah. you know, where is it on the Google hierarchy? Exactly. It's not a question of what's the quality. Yeah, no, and then there are some sites which, uh, which know about clickbait you know, and, and, and which therefore get more clicks, but doesn't mean that they're more truthful. So I think there is a real problem in the culture which, which this administration is, is able to exploit, that there is a real puzzlement, confusion, about, about the nature of reality. So what's the best defense against post-truth? Or as you once said uh, recently, sort of the state armed and at war with the fourth estate? Well, I, mean, I think we just have to fight the fight, you know? I mean, I, I, one of the things I think is encouraging is the way in which quite large numbers of people are flocking back towards the so-called fake news, so to, towards the, the failed New York Times. You know, the New York Times is getting a boost in Yes, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the circulation of the Times has gone up dramatically since the inauguration, and you know, Vanity Fair magazine is given such a boost every time it's attacked by a presidential tweet that they now use the presidential tweets in their advertising. You know? I did not know that. Yeah. In a way, one of the few good things to arise from this situation is that there seems to be a new energy in, in the world of news media. You know, people seem to be really charged up, you know, um, and that's good. And all of us, I think, just have to keep speaking, you know, and try, we have to, we have to win this argument. We have to persuade America, you know, that there are things which are so and there are other things which are not so, you know, and that, and that it's, the truth is not simply what the president says it is. Mm -hmm. you know, so. And that the institutions that make this country, as he says, great, yeah. depend on truth. Depend on truth. And he doesn't seem to understand which institutions those are. You know, I mean, that's to say you have a, an administration which is passionate about the Second Amendment, but appears to be less passionate about the First Amendment. First Amendment. Right. You know, and one suspects that before we are done, they might have to start taking the Fifth Amendment. Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's, that's also likely to happen. 
If you were to look at a project for a new book, hypothetically, and you were to say, I want to, with or without fantasy, I want to spotlight a particular truth or a few truths that really need to be spotlighted in today's world, what would those be? Well, you know, I mean, any democracy relies on two things to begin with. It relies on freedom of expression and the rule of law. I mean, that, that you know, if you don't have those things, you don't have a free society. And, and right now, we hear noises suggesting that they're thinking of tampering with the First Amendment, mm -hmm. and we see regular attacks on the law courts. You know, and post-immigration ban, etc. Yeah, and uh, just for the nature of judges, you know, a Hawaiian judge described as sitting on a little island somewhere, mm -hmm. and you know, neglecting to mention that that little island is a state. State, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so. You know, if you have a concerted attack both on the, law, the legal system and on, the, and on free expression, then that's how you destroy a democracy. You know, and that's what we have to focus on. Now, I mean, my area, because I'm, you know, I'm not a lawyer, uh, I actually think I'm very I'm grateful for the way in which the, the, the courts have been have been quite courageous. Have been holding the line, you know. I mean, if we're supposed to live with these checks and balances, you know, the, the, the legislature has been craven and the judiciary has been brave. You know? So without them, we would be in a lot more trouble. Oh, the judiciary has been quite brave, and in the UK as well. And before we get out of politics, could you say a word or two both about Brexit and also about the extreme ends of populism that we're seeing, left and, well, and right? Well, Brexit just, I mean, I, I mean I'm of the, the Remain camp, which believes that this has been a historical mistake. And I think it just there are very stupid aspects to it. I, mean, I think it's, it's on David Cameron, really, I mean, why, why this referendum was called and why it was then conceded that a simple majority would carry the day. You know, if you're changing the, the nature of the state, you're making a gigantic constitutional change. To make a simple majority is not how people do it. In this country, if you want to make an amendment to the Constitution, you need a two-thirds majority of both houses. You know, and, and so it's difficult to do, and it's right that it should be difficult to do. Oddly, I think the British currently are in a state of denial. You know, they, they don't see what's going to happen. You know, and I, I have this image of England, it is mainly England, that a, a, like a, a family having a picnic on a railway line. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and say, this is a nice place for a picnic. You know, what's the problem? Well, why is everybody so worried? I don't hear a trip. What, what, I don't know. What I is didn't that? see Macron get elected and, yeah. and have him yes. rush to Germany as his yes. first uh, you know, trip as a head yeah. of state to yeah. try what to reinforce Europe. What right. is that hooting noise in the distance? So it's, it's just owls. <laughs> and they don't know what's going to hit them um, and how badly their country will be damaged. You know, and it's horrifying to watch it. And the extremes that we've been seeing, the extreme populist, yeah. are left and right, what is well, your take I mean, on look, that? Some of it has to do with, well, in Europe, a lot of it has to do with the austerity regimes, you know, which have, which have put a lot of people into situations of great hardship. And, and here, even though in the eight years of the Obama administration, there was a kind of recover, economic recovery, that recovery didn't spread equally across the country, and there, and there were large parts of the country in which people were in real hardship. And the problem with real hardship is it allows the strongman argument to seem plausible, you know, and, and, uh, and that's what happened here. Uh, and that's what 
fortunately did not quite happen in France. I'm hoping that if you look at what's happened in Europe, first in Austria, then in the Netherlands, now in France, and, uh, that there is a, maybe a turning of the tide against this, this, this populism. Uh, but it will require Western democracies, which includes the United States, to understand that they've got to do something about the conditions which allowed this which to allowed this to fester. Yeah. And I think one of the most encouraging signs is that after the victory of Macron in France, uh, you heard European Union figures saying, now we have to help him, which means that, that, that actually they have to change the austerity programs, etc. You know, you can't just hope that every five years the French will make the right decision. Right. And there's no question that Europe has its dysfunctional aspects. Yeah. Brexit just doesn't happen to be the solution for that. No, no, no. I mean, I think there is a real need for a rethinking about how uh, how these countries are run. You know, and there were people very unhappy, very badly off, and unfortunately, those people, many of whom voted for Trump, are the people who are going to be most damaged by his policies. You know, and people who will lose health care are the people who need it most. And the idea that somehow the coal industry is going to return. It's, it's just one of the stupidities of this thing that the people swallowed it. You know, actually, these jobs, many of these jobs, were not lost to, you know, Mexico. They were lost to to, ro to robots. You know, they were, they were lost to, to automation, and they're not coming back. You, know, you have a president who makes his own clothes in China, but but who tells us that everything has to be made in America unless he's making it. So there's a great deal of hypocrisy, and I wonder how long it will take for people to understand how badly they've been fooled. There's hypocrisy and there's also a more fundamental credibility problem with someone who never tells the truth. And I was struck yeah. at the end of the 100 days that many of the journalists, the, the proper mainstream media, they were counting the lies. Yes. The, you know, the tally on his 100 days wasn't what are his achievements. And the problem with the bombardment of lies is that it becomes very difficult to keep up. You know, and so some of them go by default because not all of them can be equally investigated because there's right. too many of them. Too many of them, right. Too many of them. To live in this world means that there's a group of people which one must hope will be a dwindling group of people which just believe him whatever he says and distrust anyone who criticizes him whatever reasons whatever they, they may have. You know, now, you know, in the end, reality bites because in the end, there actually is a thing called reality. You know, there actually uh, is diminishing health care benefits. So there will be, you know, the states like Kansas, which tried to introduce the sort of tax cuts and so on, which are now being proposed on a national basis, are in dreadful trouble. They're in dreadful trouble. The people there are suffering terribly, and they realize that this system isn't working. You know, so at some point, one hopes people will understand that there is such a thing as reality, and they've been conned. Hopefully. I mean, there are two ways this can go. Either people stand up to it, yeah. or, as you say, the onslaught of lies becomes so normalized yeah. that it starts yeah. not to bother people. Well, that's the thing. This is, this is what you know, those of us living in the so-called urban elites you know, have to do. We have to keep fighting this fight. And academic institutions as well. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Yeah. I mean, you know, there is a world which believes in, in truth and science and evidence and ethics and reality. You know, and, and that, I mean, I was giving a lecture in, in Florida a few weeks ago to a very largely Trump audience, I mean, almost entirely. And, and you know, you get asked questions, or I was asked a question about climate change, where 
where I had said something about how almost all the world scientists agree on the, on the science, you know. Mm -hmm. And the questioner said, well, when you said that, that's not true. And I said, no, I mean, actually, it, it, it is it true. It actually is true. It is true. <laughs> and he said, no, it's not. And so I said, look, so we can't just go on going, yes, it is, no, it isn't, because that's stupid. I said, but let me put it this way. If you believe the world is flat, it doesn't make the world flat. You know, the, the, the world doesn't need you to believe that it's round mm -hmm. in order to be round. To be round, you right. Know? So it, there is this other thing called science, knowledge, and evidence. Go have a look at that. So well put. I'd like to look at another theme that comes up in your books, but that is also very much in the news, um, and that is migration. Yes. And I've read comments that you've made over the years about how when you yourself have gone from place to place, you've sort of kept all the places with you, and home is kind of where you are, but all of those places are, are part of you as kind of home and who you are and your identity. Yes. If I understood you correctly. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I'm wondering how that might comfort, if there is such a word, the tremendous tragedy of the migration today, Syrian refugees, even the migration internally in China and, and many, many other parts yes. of the world. It's changed. I mean, the point is that, that because refugees are not the same thing as migrants. Refugees are running away from something. Migrants usually are running towards, towards something. something. You know, one of the things that I have felt long before the refugee crisis is that we live in a time which is, in a way, defined by migration in that this is the century, let's say, in which more people have moved across the world than in the previous complete history of the human race. You know, uh, because it's, first of all, it becomes possible. You know, we have, we have airplanes and ships and so on. And, and then sometimes these are economic migrants and sometimes they're refugees. But, but the fact is we live in a world in which the human race has begun to move much more than it ever did. You know, that old idea of roots and of, of living in the place where you were born is no longer the nature of our cities. I mean, this, look at this city, you know, New York City. I mean, most people living in this city were not born here, you know, the, the large majority. And there is a combination of uh, people coming to New York and yeah. running away from something else. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the nature of modern, certainly urban reality is that migration is an inescapable fact. You know, that's, how, that's how these cities have been made. You know, and I mean, if you're in Los Angeles, looking at you know the, the enormous Hispanic population, uh, the, the really quite large Asian population, Korean and Chinese, and so Pacific on. Pacific Rim, know, yeah. That's what these cities are like, and actually, everywhere, everywhere, cities are like that now. So that's the new reality. You know, and it seems to me that that to to try and imagine a world in which that's not so, it's well, you can imagine it, but it ain't going to happen. The world is not going to deglobalize. You know, the, 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 the question is, how can we increase the amount of social justice in a globalized world? You know, and, and, and that is at, behind a lot of the populism that, that you were mentioning. You know. I mean, I was a migrant from India to England. I was a migrant from England to the United States. I mean, I spent my life being a migrant. So obviously, I'm a little bit biased. You know, in, I just was trying to, that. I found that so moving, if I can use that yeah. word. And I was thinking to myself, how can we take that sort of that idea that you take all of yourself with you and yeah. all of your connections to different places in your case? Yeah, but it's not just that. It's also you face constant choices. You face choices about what exactly do you keep with you, you know, it, uh, and, and what do you discard of, about the world you came from, and, and uh, what do you absorb from the world you come to, and what do you resist in that world? You know, and I think migrant communities all have to ask themselves those really very profound questions, which are about the nature of their own selfhood. You know, do you, you know, in the way that some migrant families insist that their children speak the language of the country they've come to, 
you know, and, and therefore those children lose mother tongue, you know, and, and other people insist on maintaining the mother tongue. So that, that's one decision that you have to make. Um, how, you know, many, many people in, in England, for example, many of the South Asian migrants come from very conservative communities. And, and there is a tension between parents and children about the degree of liberalism in the behavior allowed to young people. There are very big issues that have to be faced and argued about inside migrant communities, and then between the migrant communities and the so-called host communities. You know, so, so it ain't easy, but I think on the whole, historically, it has been enriching to countries to have new blood. You know, the literature of this country would not be what it is were it not for migrants. You know, the, the, way, the way in which... The music wouldn't be... The... Yeah, exactly. The way in which, you know, Eastern European Jewish migration, you know, created one whole strand of American literature. The way in which Italian migration created a whole other strand of American literature. And the way now, you know, in America you have people from everywhere. You know, you have, I don't know, Jhumpa Lahiri from South Asia. You have, you have Nam Le from Vietnam. You have Junot Diaz from the Dominican Republic. You know, you have writers from everywhere being American writers. You know, I mean, Chimamanda Adichie from Nigeria, you know, um, being, seeing themselves as American writers and, and enormously enriching American literature as, as a result. You know, when I moved to New York 20 years ago, there weren't any decent Indian restaurants in Manhattan. Now there's quite a lot. So, so all of this is good, you know, and I think it enriches the Well, I think that's certainly an, an important perspective with which to look at the refugees yeah, who the don't refu have a choice. Exactly. And now the refugees, you know, clearly this is to do with social generosity. You know, it's to do with, with how open, um, how, how we're, whether we're willing to open our arms or not, whether we're willing to put up barriers. And clearly there also has to be a political solution at the other end because there can't be an endless refugee flow. You know, you can't have the entire Middle East ending up in Western Europe and North America. You know, so... So there needs to be a solution to the problems which make people run. You know, nobody wants to run, leave their home and run. There, the, well, there are practical problems. And then there, it seems to me there are a couple of other strands, and, I, and I'm wondering your view. I mean, first of all, we, we discussed earlier that today's New York Times, you know, a Syrian crematorium talking yeah. about killing. Where have we seen that before? Why, yeah. How can the world stand by and watch that? Yeah. We just heard Bill Clinton, it seems to me, say, Rwanda, never again. Yes. You know, Nazi Germany isn't that far behind us. How can we stand by and see that on the front page of the New York Times? There's that aspect of it. And then for me, and this is a personal view, there's, a, there's the aspect of I'm not special. There's no reason why I should be born in the U.S. in a democratic society and have the privilege of living in London any more than these poor people who are you know, yeah. victims of the current tragedy in Syria. Well, look, there's all kinds of motivations to reject refugees, and none of them are noble. You know? <laughs> One of them is, I don't want you to have what I've got. You know? uh, yes, we live in the rich part of the world. Why does that mean that you can come and have some of it? You know? um, there's also just straightforward racism, just, you know, just old-fashioned racism. And, and, and I think anybody who's watched the United States in the last couple of years knows how much of that racism has been unleashed of late. I think it was unleashed by a black president. You know, I think there was a whole strand of America that could not stand it that a black man was in the White House. And I think a lot of this comes from that. You know, Interesting. Um, uh, 
So there's, you know, there's racism, there's the kind of have and have not problem. And then because of events in the world of the last couple of decades, there's the terrorism fear which is easily stoked, you know. So suddenly, if you have a brown skin, you're a potential suicide bomber, you know. And uh, I know a lot of people with brown skins. My whole family has them. And, and so I'm not of that opinion, you know. Many of us who don't have brown skin are not of that opinion either. No, exactly. So, exactly. Right. You know, these are, these are the motivations, and they're all ungenerous. Whereas when you cross the border into, into Canada, you see another spirit at work, uh, and that actually seems to be working pretty well. You know, uh, I mean, Canada hasn't turned into a, the victim of mass terrorism by these poor refugee children. You know, it's it's actually seems like a more decent place, more welcoming. Yeah, mm. and in which better, the better nature of human beings, you know, is prioritized over the worst nature of human beings. The nature, and also, I wonder what you think about the values, because one of the big reactions, for example, academic institution leaders, the president of Harvard, dean of Columbia Law School, many of the the reactions to the immigration ban to President Trump's proposal were, this doesn't represent our values as an institution. Yeah. You know, and they sort of went on to explain what those values were and how they were going to make sure that they were planting those value stakes yeah. in the ground. Well, where where do you get your values? Where do you get your true north? Is it from some of the stories you were reading? Is it from religion, family? You know, um, I don't know. It's a difficult question, that, because um, they evolved over a lifetime is what happens. You know, they're, they're not, you don't just get them in a little packet. I mean, when I was much younger, I, mean, I grew up in, in a very secular, but also quite a conservative Indian family. Affluent, conservative, not religious Indian family. And when I was uh, at high school and so on, I was quite conservative politically. You know? and, and one of the big, for me, one of the great awakening moments was the protests against the war in Vietnam. You know? And I mean, even though I was in England and England was not sending soldiers to, to Vietnam, but the British government was supporting the American position. So there were big demonstrations in, in, in England as well. And that was, I suddenly began to, it woke me up. I began to see the world differently. You know? And then, and these were the 60s also, you know, which they, they had their impact too. You know? I mean, I was not immune to. Uh, to both the foolishness of the 60s, you know, the, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but, but also the good things about the 60s, like the civil rights movement and the feminist movement and, you know, so on. And so I think, you know, I learned as a young person in a way to move away from the much more conservative ideas uh, into which I'd been born and into a more progressive kind of frame of mind. And then, the, you know, I, I just got older and, and kind of hopefully learned a bit more. You know, one of the things you often hear from, from religious people is that if you're not religious, you can't have a moral sense. Because if you don't have, you know, an ultimate arbiter, if you don't have somebody laying down right and wrong, good and evil commandments, you know, um, then how can you have a moral sense because you have no framework for it? You know, and, and actually, I've always thought well, that gets it upside down, that, that, that in a way religion is one of the early ways in which human beings tried to codify ideas of good and evil, but they were interested in codifying them. That maybe there is somewhere in the program, you know, some, somewhere in the DNA, there's a, a desire for ethics. There's a desire for us to have, you know, let's say like there's an ethics instinct in the mm -hmm. way the, the student, true north. 
in the way that Steven Pinker talks about a language instinct. You know, how do we learn language? Because we have an instinct for learning language. Maybe there's an ethics instinct that we have a desire to know good and, good and bad. We have a desire to know right action, wrong action. I mean, it's how we bring up children. We, we, you know, we, well, it's an organizing force. Yes, exactly. I think the problem with that argument, I, mean, I, do th I think this probably is so, that, that you know, from the very earliest age, you know, children need to know what is good and bad. They need to know what is right and wrong. And one of the things you look to your parents for is to put down those Reference rules. Reference points, you know, yeah. yeah. And, and you want the framework. You know, you want your kids push against the borders, but they want to know where the borders are, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so that suggests to me that there is a desire for a fr an ethical framework. But the problem is that the DNA appears not to tell us what the ethical framework should be. You know, it, it does, it, say we don't, we're not hardwired with with ideas of what is good and what is bad, but only that there should be a description. So, dis if I, if, so if I put that, that there should be sort of an ethics instinct together yeah. with your earlier comment that your values sort of, you, they, they evolved over time, yeah. it leads me to one of the most remarkable things I read that you had said, which is basically that life teaches you who you are. Yeah. And it's something that, you know, so your values are evolving over time and you're learning how this instinct works yes. in the real world. But you also learn the things that don't evolve. You also learn that there are things which are immutable truths, you know, and I mean, telling the truth is one of those things. <laughs> you know, one of the biggest problems, I think, for us right now is that the idea of universal truth is something which has been seriously under attack, not just in this country, but around the world. The ideas which were embodied in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is that there are things which are the rights of all human beings by right. virtue of us being human beings, you know, that... And that applies everywhere in every country and in every culture, was something which almost every country of the United Nations signed up to at the time of the Universal Declaration. You know, now, that has splintered. You know, and, and you hear from all over the world that what we say are universal rights. You know, China or Malaysia or Indonesia or the Philippines or Russia would say that we're being culturally imperialist, that we're imposing upon them. Oh, we've, we've had hundreds of years to develop democracy and rule of law. Yes. Pakistan needs more time. Yes, all of or, that. Et cetera. Yes. Yeah. This is all bullshit. Yeah. This, is all, this is always bullshit used by authoritarians to justify their authoritarianism. You know, they can leapfrog and learn from... Yeah, I mean, it just always yeah. is, you know, and because in fact, every time human beings anywhere in the world have the choice between choosing liberty or authoritarianism, they always, always choose, choose liberty. liberty. Always, you know, um, and that suggests that there is something that human beings prefer, you know, which they're often not allowed to have by the circumstances of their lives and their societies, but there are things they want, you know, when... When the Arab Spring happened, didn't succeed, but you could see in the aspirations of those young people in, in Tahrir Square in Cairo, what did they want? They wanted lives like young people have elsewhere in the world. They wanted to have a job. They wanted to have ordinary lives uh, and with, with a larger degree of personal liberty than, than they were allowed. This is what people want. People want the same things everywhere. And so that suggests to me that there is such a thing as a universal principle, you know, and, and that, and actually one of the things you, you absolutely know as a novelist is that, because human nature is the constant. 
do it. That's to say. That's why millions of people can relate to the various ethical conundrums and moral choices that your characters are making. Yeah, which, and it's why you, wherever you come from in the world, you can read a book about people from a remote part of the world and you understand it. Because human beings are human beings. You know, I, I, you know if you live, if, if I read, you know, The Tale of Genji, you know, I mean, I, I know exactly what's going on. You know, when I first read, when I first read Russian literature, when I first read Latin American literature, I had never been to Russia or Latin America. You know, when I first read American literature, I had never been to the United States. You know, and yet, literature opens those doors because it trusts human. It, it trusts the human scale. You know, you put the human being in the middle, and we're all the same. But in a sense, you need the specific context. Yes. Whether you're reading Tin Drum or Tales of Genji or whatever yeah, it is, you need you the human context and the, even the political context. You're in Dior, you're Pakistan, or yeah. no, no, you to understand the human scale. Yes, yes. You can't be you can't be vague about that. Mm -hmm. You have to be precise. Mm -hmm. And actually, in some ways, the more precise you become, the more specific you become. In a strange way, the more universal the more you become. Exactly. You know, yeah. and, and but the point is that human beings are. We understand human beings. And then we understand the situation they're in because we can imagine ourselves in that situation because that's what literature does. It allows you to be that person in that place. Mm -hmm. And so I think if, you, if you're a novelist, then you have to believe in universal values. You know, because one of the things we know from the writing and reading of novels is that human nature is that universal thing. You know? and, and so, for example, in the matter of free expression, we are the only creature on earth that tells stories. You know, that, that, that we, have, we have this very weird creature that tells itself stories to understand what kind of creature it is. Mm -hmm. you know, and we, we tell each other true stories, you know, family stories. Uh, communities have stories of the community. Nations Some would have, say religion is stories. Yeah, nations have national stories. And of course, religion is one of the grand narratives as well. You know, we all tell each other stories to try and understand who we are. And so storytelling is not just the province of writers. It's, we all do it. Everybody does it. You know? And it's in our nature. So to attack our freedom to do that is not just a First Amendment issue. I mean, it's a First Amendment issue, but it's not just that. It's actually something more profound. It's an existential problem. You're attacking na our nature as human beings. Mm -hmm. And back to your point about ethical instinct, the way I see decision-making or the how well or not so well we integrate ethics into our decision-making drives our stories. Yes. And in a social media world, it drives the stories of many people whose lives we touch whom we may never meet. Absolutely. And I think one of the most alarming things about about the modern world is how much of the leadership of that world has no interest in ethics at all. At all. At all. Mm -hmm. Zero. The interest is power, mm -hmm. full stop. Mm -hmm. you know? And that's true in very large swathes of the world now. And why know? do you think that is? Well, because, I mean, you have to read Machiavelli. <laughs> it's, uh, that that uh, you, you, we live in a, in, a, in a world in which power has succeeded in supplanting uh, ethical principles. You know, I mean, uh, I mean in, in, in Europe after World War II, there was this enormous desire, that, this sort of never again desire, you know, and which is what led to things like the creation of the European Union. It, it's what, and it's what led to generations and generations of, of what would we would now call progressive government, that e even the conservative governments were progressive, you know, who believed in... I mean, in England, 
the welfare state, which was brought into being immediately after World War II, believed that it was the duty of the state to ensure the health of the citizens, uh, the education of the citizens, and the housing of the citizens. You know, so there was a large program of public housing, a large program of public health, you know, and, and um, this was not controversial between the parties. You know, that, that, that even when there was a conservative government, they would all guarantee the National Health Service. You know, um, that ended with Margaret Thatcher. You know, um, and, um, and now we don't live in that world in which there's a consensus about what is good. You know, and, and when there isn't a consensus about what is good, it allows unscrupulous people to, 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 to get inside. It also makes more complicated this, this sort of effort we talked about earlier that some people need to stand up and say the truth matters and there is such thing as things yeah. that are so and things that are not yeah, so. Yeah. Because there isn't this consensus about what is true and no, what isn't. You've very, just lost the reference points. It's very odd because, you know, one of the things, it's true in literature and in, and, in, and in society that in order to, that between the writer and the reader, that there needs to be some kind of consensus about what reality is. You know, so, so the reader can see when the writer is playing by those rules and can see when the writer is not playing by those rules and then has to decide whether that's interesting or not interesting. But you have to have that consensus you know, between the writer and the reader about what is the case. Right. You know, what are and, the rules of the road? Yeah. And, and when in literature or in the world, we lose that consensus about what is the case and all you have is competing versions, you know, that's a that's a sort of unhealthy situation, and I mean we that's true of the world, you know, not just America. I mean, if you, you could, one way of describing the Middle East is to say that there are competing narratives, you know, uh, fighting for a very small piece of land. You know, um, there, there's a Palestinian narrative and an Israeli narrative, and they are in a way incompatible. So you have you have two descriptions of the world, which which almost can't be reconciled. You know, and what's the result of that? The result is war. You know, so, so when you have competing narratives that can't be reconciled, you are in a very unstable world, and that's where we are. And part of that instability, I mean, in listening to you, seems to be that there, there are no common reference points. Yeah. There may be common humanity, so it may be that the Israelis and the Palestinians could read your books yeah. and find common humanity, but they're reference points. And certainly once we, once we sort of you know, set the truth adrift, yeah. And we really don't have reference points. No, I mean, it's very difficult. When the truth becomes just what you, what you believe, mm -hmm. you know, belief and truth are not the same thing. Well, and actually, many other phenomena in society are colluding with this problem of post-truth. For example, yeah. identity. We're yeah. now in a society, and I say this very respectfully, where identity isn't male, female, or in transition between the two, yeah. it's a spectrum. Yeah, yeah, I, know, and, I, know. I have a big problem with identity politics. You know, and, yeah, and so because, it becomes, I'm telling you what my truth is. Yeah. You know, I'm not no, I mean, look, this is, you're talking about gender identity, and yes, that's, that's become very, uh, as you say, it's become a, a broad spectrum, and you can be one of 17 things right. on that spectrum, and that's, that has its own difficulties, you know, but, but leaving aside gender identity, identity politics has been used around the world to divide people. You know, what's happening in India right now with this very, I mean, brutalist Hindu nationalist government is that, is that it's beginning to redefine the nation, not as the secular nation of Nehru and Gandhi, but as a Hindu religious state. And therefore, the 
identity of minorities, of which the largest minority, of course, is a Muslim minority, it is being called inauthentic. Right? So, so if authenticity resides in being majoritarian, mm -hmm. you know, then you're making the reality of a very, I mean, like 15% of India is not Hindu. And 15% of 1.3 billion people is a lot of people. It's a lot of people. You know, that, that, and what happens when other nations or other cultures look at that as a model and say, yeah. if India, you know, yes, a parliamentary exactly. democracy, a very powerful nation with yeah. a lot of people do that, well, maybe that's the way we should be exactly. interpreting minorities. So this, the, the phenomenon of identity politics, and, I mean, even leaving aside the question of gender identity, the, the, just the question of communalist politics, you know, uh, has become more and more powerful. And that is... Something like Marine Le Pen, you know, has an, is basically pushing an idea of French identity, which is at odds with French reality, you know, but but which has some kind of, I guess, nostalgic appeal to, to, for a past that never existed. <laughs> I mean, when the president of the United States talks about making America great again, you want to ask when was that? When was it that it was great? Was it when there were slaves? Was that, was, you know, exactly when is that moment of greatness? And how, yeah, how are you uh, defining greatness? And how are you defining greatness? Because, you know, if you go back really relatively short periods of time, you have enormous injustices in the structure of this country. When was this golden age? You know, the point about the idea of the golden age, which is what this is, is that it's a fiction. You know, whenever countries look back to a golden age, it wasn't there. You know, but as you said earlier, it's not an honest fiction. It's no, not it's, you as a writer saying this is fiction. Yeah, no, it's a dishonest it's fiction. It's a dishonest fiction. It's a dishonest fiction, okay. yeah. And nobody would actually like to go back to the 18th century, trust me. <laughs> and I think to anybody who thinks that was when America was great, your know, Declaration of Independence, all that, I have just one word to say, and that is dentistry. <laughs> if you think you'd be happier in the 18th century, wait till Imagine you've got a, yourself with a dentist. Wait till right. you've got a toothache. Right, right. <laughs> At that point, you will wish you were not in the 18th century. Well, I want to respect your time, yeah. but two more questions. Yeah. Come back to the arts. Who do you think, and it doesn't have to be literature, but it can be, who do you think are the greatest artists in terms of getting people to recognize this common humanity to which you referred and also to think about this ethics instinct or, or at the very least, an ethical responsibility? I don't know, really. I mean, I think there are many artists that I enormously... I mean, I think what Ai Weiwei is doing in China is, 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 is enormously powerful and brave. Brave isn't necessarily the criterion when you're looking at art. You know, because you can be brave and idiotic. You can, you can be brave and talentless. You know? It's not only the geniuses who are brave, you know. But he is both a genius and brave. And so I admire him very much. And I'm no longer young enough, frankly, to know what's at the cutting edge of popular music anymore. I finally arrived at the age where I don't get it. You know, how, right. how, when, we, how when we were kids, the, one of the definitions of popular music was that your mother wouldn't like it. You know, and, and, and it was uh, going to be loud. And, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I remember when I was young and listening to Elvis, my mother wanted me to listen to the Christian rock of Pat Boone. And I thought, you know, really? I could listen to Hound Dog? Well, I asked my, uh, <laughs> I asked my children to do a playlist for me because I'm yeah. completely technologically inept. And they looked at me and they said, you will not like anything we would put on it. Yes, so. yes. well, that's what, my, that's what my 20-year-old says. He says, this music isn't for you. Right. And he's right. And he's right. So, but I mean, there are people out there who are enormously influential. 
I mean, the whole kind of Jay-Z, Beyonce, Kendrick Lamar. I get as far as you two, you know, and I get, I get that far. And I remember being at a, at a, at a, at a gig in Times Square, where, which was you two, but also Kanye. Oh, okay. And, and I could tell that even though, given the enormous popularity of you two, that the audience's response to Kanye was bigger than it was to mm. you two. So I thought, oh, something, hap something has happened something here. Has happened, something right. has happened here. Right. So now those people have enormous influence, but unfortunately so do no talent people whose names begin with K. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, the, the problem of reality television is that, is, that, is that that has also become colossally influential on young, particularly young girls. You know, um, and I don't think in a constructive way, really. No, actually, I think there are a number of forces that I call them forces that drive contagious unethical behavior. Yeah. And I think this quest for celebrity is most definitely it's one very, of them. It's very, it's a great disease. And the other problem, I think, is that, that, that social media make possible is anonymity. You know, so because everybody on Twitter is hiding behind imaginary names, it allows them to be, to behave in a way that they would not behave if they had their real name and they were sitting in the room with you. So they can be ruder, more discourteous, more racist, more everything, because they're hidden behind this cloak. And so I fear sometimes that we're bringing up a generation of very rude people. And irresponsible people. Irresponsible people who are never held... Accountable. Yeah. Accountable, yeah. yeah. And I think that's becoming the great problem of social media. So one last question, if I may. Mm. Um, we talked a lot about truth. But aside from truth, what really matters? What are you really thinking about today? What matters to you, personally or professionally? What matters is beauty. beauty. You know, I mean, that's, if you're an artist, you're in the beauty business. Mm -hmm. you know, you, you're trying to make beautiful things. And now beautiful things don't have to be you know, fashion plate beautiful, you know, but beautiful because they're true. Mm -hmm. Beauty is truth, truth, beauty, said Keats. Right. Um, you're trying to make a thing which is beautiful and durable. You know, I mean, you, you, I mean, my friend Martin Amis had a nice phrase once. Where, where, where he said that what you hope is that you will leave behind a shelf of books. Mm -hmm. you, know, you want to be able to say, like, from here to here, it's me. You know, and, and you want those books to outlast you. So, and so the question is, what creates enduring quality in, in a work of art? You know, and, and it has to be something to do with beauty. You know, um, books survive, any work of art survives because people love them. You know, scandal doesn't do it. And actually commercial success doesn't do it. You know, the greatest, the most successful American novel of the 1930s was a novel called The Green Hat by Michael Allen. Sold zillions of copies. You know, hasn't been in print in forever. I haven't you know. heard of it. Nobody's heard of it, you know. Who reads Peyton Place? <laughs> no. And yet the biggest selling American novel of the 50s and early 60s was Peyton Place. You know? So commercial success doesn't endure, doesn't, doesn't guarantee that you will endure. It's only love. It's only that people love the book. You know? And, and uh, those are the books that survive. So what you're trying to do is do that. Well, I'm one of many millions who love your books. Thank you. And thank you so much. Again, it's been truly an honor to speak with thank you. Thank you. It's been great. Really thank you appreciate very much. it. Mm.